You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Chapter 16, and I'm going to teach the Bible this morning, okay? Um, And I, I say we do that every week, but in some ways you're going to feel that this morning. So uh, the, the, <clears throat> let me give you the big picture. Second Samuel 16, David's towards the end of his life. He's probably 60 years old. He's only this last probably 10 years of his life. His son Absalom, um, we looked at last week's bitter angry at his dad. They have a terrible relationship. Absalom is... Um, leading a coup to take over his father's throne. So David is on the run. He's running. He's, he's left outside of Jerusalem. He's got some people that are faithful to him. But he has left Jerusalem. He's gone to the Mount of Olives at the end of, of chapter 15. Now he is um, descending into the plains, and he's headed north, and he's he's departing, he's leaving. and he, I mean... He's on the run. This is a very desperate time, a very vulnerable time for David. And in this chapter, chapter 16, the writer is going to give us three scenes. There is going to be a scene with a man who appears to be a friend. There's going to be a scene with a man who appears to be an enemy. And there's going to be a scene of a man who appears to be out of control. So let's begin, beginning in chapter 16, verse 1. This is how it goes. It says, uh, When David passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him in a couple of donkey, with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, and 100 of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, Why have you brought these things? And Ziba answered, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on the bread and Summer fruit are for young men to eat, and the wine are for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, Where's your master's son? Ziba said to the king, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem, for he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my Lord, the King. Talk about a man who appears to be a friend named Ziba. Ziba is the ultimate opportunist. Now let me just go ahead and say at the very beginning, he's going to tell a big fat lie about Mephibosheth in verse 3, and we know it's a big fat lie because we're going to go three, three chapters later, you encounter Mephibosheth. David's going to go back into Jerusalem uh, Absalom doesn't win. David wins. Sorry to spoil the story for you. But he goes back in. He meets Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth and he says to Mephibosheth, he says, well, why didn't you come with me? He said, well, I wanted to. I tried. I wanted to go saddle my donkey, but Zebra wouldn't let me. And then he took off. And besides, I mean, I'm crippled. I couldn't do anything. And then he told you a lie about me. And besides all that, then the writer tells us, he gives us this physical description of Mephibosheth, and it's, he's been, it's like he's been abused. I mean, his feet haven't been cared for, his beard is unkempt, it hasn't been, and his clothes haven't been washed. 
since David left Jerusalem. He's been homeless. Ziba is the ultimate opportunist. He was part of Saul's administration. David had given him charge over the affairs of Mephibosheth. Now, Mephibosheth is Jonathan's son, Saul's grandson. David and Jonathan had a covenant with each other. They loved each other dearly. Remember, we talked about all that. Jonathan, Saul's son. But Jonathan and David, I mean, they just they had this friendship and this love for each other. They made a covenant, a, a, a binding covenant. And David covenanted with Jonathan, I'm going to take care of your family. And then when Jonathan, when Saul dies, and then Jonathan dies, David looks for someone he can care for, finds out Jonathan had a son named Mephibosheth. He's crippled. David brings him in, restores all this land to him, says, you can eat at my table anytime. And he cares for him and loves him like a son. So here, David, he's on the run. And they're a few days out, maybe a couple of weeks out. And um, this is rough country. I mean, there's no, you know, 7-Elevens or... Uh, you know, water burgers out. I mean, you know, so here comes Zeba. And he's got some donkeys and he's got all this stuff. And he says, hey, um, hey, David. And, and so on the one hand, this is, a, this is a welcomed sight. I mean, this is provision. I mean, they needed this provision. But on the other hand, David is suspicious. And he's going to ask him two questions. In verse 2, he says, okay, why have you brought these? David is asking about his motive. Why the generosity, Ziba? I know who you are. I mean, you're Saul's man. You've always been Saul's man. Why are you here? Now, notice how Ziba answers the question. The question is about motive. Why are you here? Why? Why have you brought these? Notice how Ziba answers it. Well, I mean, David, I know you've been out here a long time, but I, I mean, donkeys are for riding. Bread is for eating. Wine is for drinking. Totally, totally dodges the question. Now, we've got to think about it for a second. David's tired, and he's discouraged. He's not at his best. The circumstances of life are pressing in on David, and his feelings are, are way more powerful than all the facts in his life right now. Okay, let's just... I mean, that's just how it goes when you're, when you're out on the run and you've been, you know, you're being overthrown by your son who has absolute disdain for you. Well, the second question in verse 3, where is your master's son or your master's grandson? The, the question is, where's Mephibosheth? And this is what Ziba was really aiming at. So I want you to see the treachery of this man. I mean, he... He is not a friend. He is the worst kind of enemy. He is out for no one but himself. He is playing both sides of this deal. So he goes out there alone with all of these things. So here's what he's doing. He's hedging his bet. If David happens to, you know, not get ultimately overthrown, come back into Jerusalem, Ziba has bought himself future grace with David because he'll be able to say, David, you remember when you were on the run and I brought this stuff to you? And he says, you know, this thing. He's betting on the one hand, maybe David doesn't get overthrown and he'll end up coming back to Jerusalem. I need to buy some capital with him. The second thing, though, is 
Ziba doesn't actually go with him. Ziba's not actually with him. He drops the stuff off. He'll go back to Jerusalem, and he's going to go figure out a way to, 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 to make it in Absalom's world. He, he's not out for David. He's not out for Absalom. He's out for himself. He's a man of no principle and has no value. Here's the other thing, though. His generosity is not really generosity. It's wickedness. He is not giving something to David. He is taking something from David. He wants David's loyalty, but he wants it at no cost to him. Do you know where the donkeys came from and with the bread and the summer fruit and the wine? Do you know where that came from? Not Zeba. It's Mephibosheth's. That's where it would have come from. It wasn't even his to give. He's not giving something to David. He's come to take something from him. Thirdly, he is a treacherous liar. No compassion, no sympathy. He is an act of hatred. David is in a low place. And he's on the run, and he's estranged, and he's in great need, and he's vulnerable. And Ziba moves in for the kill. David's vulnerability is Ziba's game. Matthew Henry says it this way. He goes fishing in troubled waters. And he will magnify David's loss and hurt with a lie. David loved Mephibosheth. Loved him. Poured out his grace to him for the sake of his father. And you know what? Mephibosheth loved David back. Ziba shows up and says, he doesn't love you. He's never loved you. He's always been waiting for an opportunity to ascend to the throne himself, and he saw it, and he has cut you loose, David. And for whatever reason, David in this moment believes it. I guess the feelings of discouragement and being overwhelmed, the feelings seem to outweigh the facts in that moment. And David will do something that he regrets later in verse 4. It makes a rash decision and gives all of Mephibosheth's uh, property and belongings to Ziba, which is really the only thing Ziba cared about. He came in like a serpent. A liar and a deceiver with no care for his prey. He comes in and looks like a friend. You know, bearing gifts, offering relief, says, I'm here for you. And then he tells the lie. You know what the lie is? Comes and says, I'm here for you. <laughs> Man, I'm glad I found you. Got here just in time. I'm here for you. And then you know what he says? Nobody else is. Nobody else is here for you. Everyone's abandoned you. You are not loved, David. See, Ziba's the enemy. We still have enemies like that today. In fact, you know what? We have the enemy. The deceiver. Who Peter will say prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour. Coming with gifts and comfort and pleasure when you are vulnerable or tired or weak or discouraged. It's just what you need. It's just what you need. And... By the way, nobody loves you. 
nobody cares about you. Better be glad I showed up when I did. You know, that's what the deceiver does. Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. And that's what he does. Well, yeah. God said you can't have that, huh? Well, you know why he said that. The implication. He's keeping the very best from you. Listen. The enemy hates you. No matter how he may present, he hates you. That's why you've got to preach the gospel to yourself. The gospel is not a feeling. It is the fact that that God sent his son to die on a cross to forgive you of your sins and he died, was buried, raised on the third day so that you could be raised to new life and nothing, nothing, nothing separates you from the love of God, certainly not your feelings. I'll tell you, stress and circumstance and discouragement put you in a place of vulnerability and we think our feelings are reliable guides and they are not. And the enemy gospel not feelings it is the very fact manifest in the son of God and his love for you go out to Ziba hey listen don't be a Ziba either don't be used by the enemy don't be an opportunist that seeks to devour somebody when they're vulnerable don't do that. All right, let's go to the next one. That's the first one. A guy who looks like he's a friend. Here's a guy who appears to be an enemy. Well, he is, but uh, there's more to it than that. Verse 5. When day, King David came to Baharim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shammai, the son of Gera, as he, um, and he came, and as he came, he cursed continually. Is, uh, it's, a, it's a PG-13 sermon. Sorry, I should have said that in the beginning. Just a joke. All right. So, and he threw stones at David, and all the servants of King David, and all the people, and all the mighty men were at his right and his left hand. And Shammai said as he cursed, Get out! Get out, you man of blood! You worthless man! The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you reign. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See... Your evil is on you. You're a man of blood. That's what he says. So Shammai, here's the deal. He's a relative of Saul, and for the past 30 years or so, he's held a grudge that his family was unseated from the throne, and all the privileges of royalty are gone, and he's bitter, and he's angry, and now spent most of his life this way, but he's a coward, and he's mostly just been cranky and, and grumpy, and this old man who just kind of mumbles to himself, under his breath and he's mean to children and got, you know, beware of dog on his chain link fence. It's that guy. But the word's out and David's on the run and David's kingdom is in jeopardy and Shammai, he's reckoned that David is, you know, he's done. He's a common man. He's a fugitive. And lo and behold, here David is walking, walking out on the sidewalk in front of his house. And so Shammai comes out with a bunch of rocks and starts throwing rocks 
and starts, you know, slinging hatred and bitterness spewing from his mouth. Bitterness spewing from his soul. That old saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. That's the dumbest thing in the whole world. Yeah, it's not true. It's, that's not true at all. So I've been doing I've, listen, I've been doing counseling for twenty plus years, and I have seen people in the counseling office. And you know what? In their past, they've had broken bones and you know, broken leg, broken arm, been in, you know, had stitches. They've never come to counseling as adults because they broke their arm as a kid. I cannot, I cannot count the many of people who have come to talk to a pastor or a counselor because of a hateful word said to them. That throw rocks at me. Hateful words will break your soul. This man is pouring out venom on David. I, I don't listen, I don't want you. Let, let's not just read by this. I mean, David is already is very low place. I mean, he's he he's already just believed the lie that Mephibosheth, who he loved, has abandoned him. And, and here's the thing. Everything Mephibosh, everything that Shemaiah is saying is a lie. Look, verse 7 says, you're, you're, a, you're, you're a man of blood, you're a worthless man. The implication is, is that David has been a treacherous king and has murdered his enemies. That's not true. That's a lie. David has absolutely not done that. He has been a king in war. He has not been a man who has murdered his enemies. Verse 8, it says, The blood of the house of Saul, which the accusation is, is that David murdered Saul and that he murdered Jonathan. And again, that's not true. In fact, he loved Jonathan, and he he was he 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 had plenty of opportunity to kill Saul, and he did not. He mourned the death of Saul and sought to honor the name of Saul and his family. The rest of verse eight goes on, and he says, "The Lord's given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom." God's ripping the kingdom out of your hands, David. Because of all the things you've... Because of who you are. That's what he's saying. Which is a lie. Because God's made an everlasting covenant with David. Shemaiah comes and says, You know what? You've messed up, David. God doesn't love you. Your sin is greater than God's grace. And you are getting what you deserve. The vengeance of God is on you. Quite a day for David. You can imagine what his journal entry was when he went to bed that night. Actually, you know, you don't have to imagine. It's Psalm chapter 3. It begins by saying when David was on the run from Absalom. It's the first prayer in the Psalms. It begins this way. Oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, listen to this, 
There's no salvation for him and God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. Cry aloud to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy hill. You want to know how David heard those curses? He heard them this way. God is not going to save you, David. Well, so that's Shammai. He comes out, and and so here's the reaction. Look at verse 9. Then Abishai, the son of uh, Her, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse the Lord my king? Let me go over and take his head off. King said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruah? If he's cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? So Zeruah, listen, she must have been some kind of woman. She's David's sister. She has three sons, Abishai, Joab, and Asahel. And Abishai was the chief of the mighty men. Joab, and and, and he's the most renowned of the mighty men. He killed 300 people one day in a battle with a spear. That's a bad dude, all right? So then Joab, he's the commander of David's army. Asahel, he's also one of David's mighty men. I mean, these are some serious dudes. They are the nephews of David. And Abishai, in verse 9, wants to stop this nonsense. He wants to defend David. Enough is enough. And he says, David, my mom taught me this. If People that don't have heads can't curse. Let me go take his head off. Well, in verse 10, David's going to do something. He's going to act very kingly. In fact, the text even says so. It says, But the king said. See, this is a long time coming with these boys, these nephews. Um, we haven't talked much about Abishai's brother, Joab. He's been around in the stories, but the, the, he's the commander of David's army, and Joab was a very heavy hand. He was too heavy of a hand, and David did not rule him. He was passive with Joab. Joab, he was the fixer. He was arrogant, and Joab's violence was a poison in David's kingdom, and David should have dealt with Joab but he didn't. But David's not going to make the same mistake with his brother um, Abishai, and so he says, no. If he's cursing because the Lord has said so, let him do it. Look what he says in the next verse, verse 11. And David said to Abishai and all his brothers, Behold, my own son seeks my life, How much more may this Benjamite leave him alone? Let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road while Shammai went along the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary, at Jordan. And there he refreshed himself. Verse 14, someday I'm going to come back to it. I'm going to 
I'm going to preach for an hour on verse 14, but I'm going to, I want to come back up to 11 and 12 this morning, and I want you to see something. In verse 11, here's what David's saying. My son seeks my own life, so I understand why this guy's angry. If my own son's out to get me, let this guy be angry. Leave him alone. Let him curse me. And then he says this. The Lord's told him to. It may be the Lord will look on the wrong done to me, and that the Lord will repay me with good for this cursing to be. Now, follow me for a second here. I want to... I need to do some teaching. David is not looking to silence the man's cursing. That's not what he's looking to do. Here's what he's doing. He's looking for something else. He's looking for God's purpose in all of this. Nobody's cutting off any heads. God may be doing something here, and it would be worse to miss what God's doing than to endure this cursing. It may be this is it. Exactly, God's will. Now, in verse 12, we have verse 12 up there. It says this. You see this? It says, the wrong done to me. There is, it is the translation of one Hebrew word. That Hebrew word is actually the word for sin or the word for iniquity. I think what David is saying, and several very conservative biblical scholars make this point, is this. So hear me as I read it this way. It may be that the Lord will look upon my iniquity. He'll look upon my sin and that the Lord will repay me with good for this cursing today. Now this is absolutely radical. And this is David at his very best. Spurgeon said this, the bright side of David's character was generally seen either when he was actively engaged, like when he was on the battlefield with Goliath, or when he was greatly suffering and he was seldom at leisure without falling into mischief. David does not defend himself. You will not find it. He does not do it. Listen, he will defend Israel fiercely. He will defend his people fiercely. He will defend God fiercely. He does not defend himself. He will go like a lamb to the slaughter. You know who else won't defend themselves? the greater son of David. Innocent yet declared guilty. Pilate says, just give me something. Just tell me something. Without a word. Goes to the cross, declared guilty though he is innocent. You know what he's guilty of? Nothing. You know what he dies for? all of our guilt. But does not defend himself. Did he defend Israel? Yes. Did he defend God? Yes. Did he defend his people? Yes. Did he defend himself? No. David looks to God 
to defend him. The, the rest of Psalm 3 says this, I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves all around me. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And this is David at his very best. And here's what David's saying in verse 12. When he says in verse 11, this is the Lord's will, this cursing from Shammai, and that it may be that God will look on my iniquity and repay me with good for the cursing today. Here's what David means. The cursing is, is from God. And he'll say, kind of what he's saying is, I know it's what I deserve. Shammai's wrong, though. I mean, that guy's, he's flat wrong. I mean, so he's a liar. He's slandering David. Shammai's telling lies about David. David's innocent of those accusations. But at the same time, you know what? David knows he's not innocent. David knows he's guilty. David knows he is a man of guilt. And presumably, Shammai doesn't know anything about chapters 11 and 12. Doesn't know anything about Bathsheba. Doesn't know anything about Uriah. Doesn't... It's like David saying, look, Shammai, all that stuff's not true. And the truth is, you could do a whole lot better than that. If you knew the half of it, Shammai, I'm more guilty than you could possibly imagine. David doesn't defend himself. He takes no position of self-righteousness. You know, Jesus says in Matthew 5.25, agree with your adversary quickly. And the enemy comes and says, you know what? You're no good. You're rotten. You're a no good, rotten person. You know what you say? You're right. That's exactly right. This is exactly who I am. I make no pretense about it. And my only hope is in the righteousness and goodness and perfection of Jesus, not in my own. You know what the enemy does? Stands and accuses all day long. You know what Jesus does? He's seated at the right hand of the Father making intercession for You're mine, you're mine, you're mine, you're mine. And I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. David understood the situation in light of the Lord's word to him about the consequences of his sin. Look, David knew. He knew his guilt. He, it's, not that, it's not that he's saying, look, Shammai's right, or that Shammai heard from God, and God told him to come here and curse that's not what he's saying. On the contrary, Shammai's own actions, motivations, they're wrong. Shammai's going to actually come confess that to David later. However, David could see God's purpose in it. This is so important in the teaching of God's Word, the sovereignty of good and evil. Evil never thwarts God's good purposes. Did you notice? Evil never thwarts God's good purposes. Neither is evil ever justified. because it's used for God's good. When God takes evil 
and uses it for good that never justifies the evil, ever. But hear this. God is able to take evil and with it do whatever good He pleases. Go to Genesis chapter 50. Joseph will stand before his brothers and say, what you meant for evil. Thank you, God, that you meant it for good. David is saying, not my will, God, but yours. That's what he's saying here. He is prepared to let the cursing go unanswered, not as an admission of guilt, but as an act of faith. He is trusting God. But here's what's so radical. I haven't even gotten to the radical part yet. You ready? Are you still still with me? I I just need two more minutes. And then then you you can put it in neutral, okay? Verse 12, did you notice it? It's the secret to why David's at peace here. That the Lord, it may be that the Lord will repay me with good for this cursing today. Let that sink in for a moment. David is reminded of his guilt. He is feeling the weight of the ugliness of sin in that moment. And yet he knows, look, it's not me to defend me. Don't let God do that. But it may be, it may be that somehow in the goodness and outrageous grace of God, that He can turn that curse into my goodness. Why in the world would David say that? How in the world could David say that? And I will tell you, you read it through the Psalms, you read it, He has this kind of, if you will, holy hunch. He knows what it is to be restored by God, to be forgiven by God, to be loved by God. He does not believe about God that God is a God who is holding something against him. But rather, he is a God who is holding him. Listen, believer, listen, friend, repentance and forgiveness, I mean, they come from God. And, 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 and yet they are, they are sure, we're sure sometimes, we pray and we ask forgiveness and we ask repentance but we're sure somehow God is God is holding a grudge against us. And that we are doomed to the junkyard of Christianity. I want you to get a glimpse of David's God this morning. What if we have a God who can look at guilt 
and return good. Who can look deep into the heart of your guilt and return to you goodness and grace and mercy. Shammai is the man who curses. David tells us that God is a God who reverses curses. You know, in fact, Paul says the same thing in Galatians chapter 3, 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. You know how? By becoming the curse for us. He looks deep into the heart of your guilt. Oh, yeah. That was counted to my son. It was put on him on the cross. It died with him, was buried with him. He rose to new life. Your new life, you're in Christ. You get goodness. Don't, don't miss this. David doesn't have to defend himself. You don't have to either. God has already done it. There is nothing that can be said about you that wasn't already said about you 2,000 years ago on a hill on Golgotha. And he loves you. Oh, gosh. Okay, I got... Here's the... All right. This next bit, you're not going to see it in a VeggieTales movie, so let me just summarize it for you, all right? We're back to Absalom. It's real quick. Let me summarize it. Absalom, he, he goes to Jerusalem. So he goes in there, says, okay, this joint's mine. I'm, I set up shop. He takes a Hiphophel, who was David's counselor. He's now Absalom's counselor. And the Hiphophel, you find out, is a really wise guy, but he's wise in the ways of the world. He knows how the world works. Sometimes that gets mistaken for divine counsel. In Ahithophel's case, it does. But there's also another guy named Hushai, who at the end of 15, there's another story, David and Hushai, they were great friends, and text tells you, Hushai, David's friend. And David says to Hushai, you've got to go in there. I, I, I won't have eyes and ears in there. Hushai says, don't you worry about it, David. I got you covered. So he goes, he goes in there, presents himself before Ab Absalom, says, hail to the king. And Absalom's like, yeah, baby. Although he didn't know Hushai meant David, but that's what happens when you are drunk on ego and pride. So you get to the deal, and then Absalom says, Okay, Hiphophel, what should I do? Here I am in Jerusalem. How do I, how do I make this thing official? So Hiphophel says, Well, I'll tell you how you make it official. You take David's concubine up on the roof. In fact, we'll get a big tent, some streamers. And you go into the whole concubine up there on the roof in front of everybody. You show them just how powerful you are. Just how finally you have conquered David. Now, the concubine thing's complicated. If you ever come to me and say, well, I'm, I feel like God's called me to have a concubine because David had one, I'd say, 
Okay, well, God's called me to be Abishai, so I'm going to cut your head off, all right? Um, this is how that works, all in the same chapter. But that's how you showed, that's how you, with great disrespect and dishonor, took someone's position over, was you defiled their concubine. Absalom did it in front of the in front of everybody. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? No veggie tale story ever gonna tell that. Here's what I want to say about this, real quick, we'll be done. And I want to talk about God's sovereignty and man's free will. You know what Absalom's doing? He is shaking his fist at David and he's saying, you know what? In in doing that, he says the text says you'll make a stench of yourself, Absalom, which is a, a one way of saying, you're saying, I have totally cut myself off from him. He is not my king. He is not my father. His God is not my God. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. Look at me. I'm doing exactly what I want to do. Nobody's going to stop me. That's what he's saying. You know what's interesting? About four chapters before this, God said to David, one of the judgments against you is that your son's going to take your concubine in front of all of Israel and defile them in front of everybody. Absalom believes he is acting in the height of his arrogance and in all of his free will. You know what he's doing? He is under the very command of God. This is a perfect picture here. The Bible speaks to us about a God who can allow man to do anything he wants and leaves nothing to chance. Man can act in his own free will inside the purposes of God, be held culpable, and God leave nothing to chance. Absalom not one minute of your life that is not under the direct and divine sovereignty of God. Not even your rebellion. And you know what? Not yours either. Have you relished your free will this morning? Great. No? You're culpable for it. And God has left nothing to chance. You are His. Friend who seemed like a friend. An enemy who seemed like an enemy. And a man who seemed like he was in control. You know what this chapter is about? It's about God. It's about the grace, and the goodness, and the sovereignty of God. Have you bowed your life before Him? Do you know Him? Have you come to a place...